So I'm guessing you've done a few podcasts before. I have not. You haven't? Yeah. It's it's been a a forum that but you're I kind can, of a famous guy though. Yeah, I just never felt that I could really control the narrative <laughs> well and, enough. And so you picked this one though. I, I, I this is my first actually, oh my to gosh. be honest. All right, well this will be good then. Let's give it a shot. Yeah, no hazing or anything involved. This will be good. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Nordy Pod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, president of Nordstrom and your host for this podcast. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. In this episode, we're asking you to do something that we've talked about doing, but we've not really done. For those of you that listen all the way through, at the end of every episode, I say, and let us know if you had a great experience or even a bad experience, and maybe we'll talk about it on the Nordy Pod. I get my share of complaints around here, but we've yet to find someone that's willing to be on the podcast to talk about their complaint. That's going to change today. We actually are going to talk to a former employee who served up what is maybe the most common complaint I get, and that is we're not as good as we used to be. So Vicki Redding, a former Nordstrom employee who lives in Southern California, has been gracious enough to come on and give us her feedback. I think you're going to be interested to see how that goes. I'm hearing it from so many people, friends, family. They're saying, what's happening? Where Nordstrom is walking away from service. But before that, I'm really excited to have on the Nordy Pod Ben Gorham. And Ben is the founder of Byredo, which is a luxury brand that mostly sells fragrances and beauty products. But uh, it's founded in 2006 and uh, really a, a great brand here at Nordstrom. So, Ben, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, Ben, you know, we are talking a little bit before, but... One of the themes that have run through the podcast is that we've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs and you've got a really fascinating story about really creating something out, out of nothing. I, I think maybe the, the best thing for us to start with is, you know, before we get to where you created that business is tell people a little bit about who you are and where you're from. For sure. I was born in Sweden, I lived uh, the first 11, 12 years there to an Indian mother and a Canadian father. And I grew up with my mother and my sister in Sweden until age 12, and then I moved to Canada. And my first life, as I, as I like to refer to it as, I was an athlete, completely dedicated to basketball. So from the age of seven until, you know, my early 20s, I, it was really all I did and all I focused on. I'm interested to talk about that, though, because I don't run into a lot of people in the fashion business, and particularly in the beauty business of any sort, that were basketball players. I mean, just this story right here, the fact that that was really what your whole youth, your your personal identity was about, right? Was being an athlete and a basketball player. For sure. And I think it was and is unusual. And I think for the first few years of founding the brand, I kind of suppressed it because I felt that even in the narrative of, of building a brand, it was kind of counterproductive. That idea of the jock wasn't very credible. So I, I talked very little uh, about that part of my life. But it was also from that, you said identity. It was from that identity crisis of losing sports that I was able to 
you know, really focus all my energy on building a brand that would fill that void, essentially. Now, did I read this? You actually played some professional basketball? I did. So, so I, where, did you play in Canada or where no, did you play No, I, I, so I left college to play in Italy and then Germany and then eventually brought me back to Sweden. Yeah, that's amazing. So you were successful. You're a good player. Well, until I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I know that goes. You know, I, you know, it was a big, we talked about this with other people for the podcast about when you're a teenager and you find your tribe and how you self-identify. And for me, I mean, you're a tall guy too. I mean, every time I met anybody, they said, well, are you a basketball player? Because I'm tall. And I like basketball. So I, that was kind of my identity. That's what I liked. That's what I did. And, you know, if you had asked me at 13 years old what I was going to do when I was going to grow up, I, was, I wanted to be a basketball player, uh, which seemed like a realistic dream when I was 13, not so much when I was like 18, 19, or 20, for sure. So that was your dream, though, right? You, you thought you were going to be a professional basketball for player? Sure. And, and you did. For sure. But, but I think the, the reality crept up quick with not being able to continue and you know to your point with sports it always ends was there an injury thing or did you just kind of realize look and I've kind of gone as far as I can go no well the, the truth was I never really got to the getting paid part at least not properly because I needed a European passport and being born in Sweden my assumption was that I could get one uh, and I learned quickly that Sweden didn't have birthright so I spent three years floating around with teams in Europe, not being able to essentially sign the contracts that made me the big money. And it was in that kind of realization that I had to assess the likelihood of getting one in my mid-20s and what that would mean for the longevity of a career. So it's probably as devastating as an injury, but it was harder to accept because it was such a technical issue uh, that I had no control over. At that point in my life, I started considering what else I could do. And I think uh, I enrolled in the Stockholm Art School at that point when I couldn't continue playing basketball, uh, just in some type of creative exploration and got a degree in, in fine arts. Uh, and that's where my kind of journey, creative journey begins somehow. So when you were young, obviously you were good at sports. Did you have a creative side to you? Was this something that was always part of you or? Creatively, I think, you know, if you ask my mother, she'll tell you that I was always creative. But I guess that's what mothers do <laughs> to encourage you. <laughs> they see the best in their kids. They do, sure. but I, I never explored it in any one way until my second year in college. I, I studied interior architecture and design and for the first time felt something. So... Why fragrance? How, how did that come to be? I mean, so you're pursuing design, creativity, what have you, and it manifests itself in fragrances, which yeah, no, seems unusual, too. It, it was, and it, and it is, I think. As you said, I was trained in a very visual facet through painting and sculpture and photography and, and sketch. And I met a perfumer by chance at a social event, and we had a very interesting discussion about smell and how, for me, how I connected smell to memory. And this kind of thought stayed with me. And I in, eventually contacted this perfumer and asked him to help me with a creative project, which was simply translating uh, specific memories into smells. That interest grew into, you know, an obsession. And I think at that point I decided that I could either be an artist and be poor, <laughs> uh, or create this commercial vehicle and this brand. Uh, and in my mind, the brand could be so much more because 
I had lost sports and all the aspirations and ambitions that came with that, even, you know, as a lifestyle. I, I grew up with my mother and sister, quite, uh, quite poor and quite simple. I, I was very focused on sport being the vehicle for me to create a comfortable life for myself and my family. Uh, and now this company and this brand, you know, could fulfill a part of that. So you talk about coming from humble beginnings, what have you. I'm curious how you're able to start a brand, particularly something in the beauty industry, which is so competitive and requires a lot of money, actually, to for the R&D and to be able to in the marketing side of it. How, how are you able to have this idea about fragrances and then make it a commercial venture? I mean, did where did you get the money to to start this business? It was kind of the first challenge, right? As I said, I wanted to make perfume. At the time, fragrance manufacturing was a you know, very industrialized process, required, yes, the capital, but also large minimums. And, and candles was a category that I could make myself. So I actually started in my kitchen making fragrance candles with the help of this perfumer just to be able to raise enough capital to develop and launch the fragrances. So there was kind of a period in the beginning, yes, where it seemed extremely hard to break into the beauty industry and the fragrance specifically. But like I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs tell you that being naive and not knowing is really what helps you push through those initial phases. What was the tipping point where you, you had this idea, you're working on something, and then you actually started to see something happening commercially? I think once I launched the fragrances just physically in department stores. So, okay, but even how did you get there? I mean, where was the first place your product showed up? I started with the first store that I secured was a store in Paris called Colette. Oh, sure. I'm very familiar with Colette. Yeah. But, which for the culture. How did you get in there? That is, huh? that's a pretty cool place to it start. It was a pretty cool. I found a, a friend of mine now, but he was the current head of press for Colette. And we had a friend in common. And I called him and said I was going to be in Paris that our common friend thought we should meet. And I eventually ended up sending him products, which he passed along to Sarah, which so owned the shop. So you had the packaging and the whole deal. You, it was. I had most of it done at that point, but it was really just knocking on doors. And the capital came from where to do this? From a, a small group of uh, investors in Stockholm that it, it invested only in tech. And I somehow convinced them that a, a brand could be as valuable as a patent. And they put some initial seed funding in. And I took that money, put my head down, and I, I ran. For me, I had nothing to lose. I really had nothing. I had lost basketball. I was working construction in Sweden. I was applying for jobs. I remember applying for uh, a job as a garbage man and not getting the job. And really, <laughs> really? Yeah, so when I describe this, you know, my mindset of, of the time, I really had nothing to lose. So the fact that I had the uh, opportunity to create a product, partly then with somebody else's money, and the promise of delivering sales and budgets was my world for those first few years. So I slept on couches and flew around the world and tried to make sure that I figured out uh, what to say so that people would actually buy these and, and try these products. Yeah, you must be a really good salesman. I'm, well, I'm just trying to imagine. Well, it you took start, me 20 years. Yeah. You get <laughs> this brand new business. I mean, you're for basketball player. You, you applied for a job as a garbage man, and your first product ends up in Colette. And for people that aren't familiar with the store, that is pretty amazing. Also, just I founded the brand in end of 2005, beginning of 
you know, almost 20 years ago, the, the world was a very different place. You just had to get your foot in the door, and that allowed you to call Vogue and send them a press release and say, I sell my product at Colette, and this is what I do, and this is my picture. And that would be as simple as that. Wow. Yeah, I make it sound maybe a little <laughs> bit more simple than it was, but, but I think this is prior to social media, before the boom of e-com and physical retail was how we experienced products. So Ben, I'm, I'm curious about just the creative process and how that worked. I mean, you, you started out with some ideas about fragrance and what have you, but I mean, to be successful in this business, you have to keep applying innovation and creativity to it. T- talk a little bit about your creative process and what you've learned you know, since you very first began. You know, as I started again, I knew nothing about fragrance and I knew nothing about making fragrance. So working with the perfumer, I had to develop the dialogue and the verbiage to to get the perfumer to, to bring the fragrance in the direction I wanted. Yeah, and, well, that must have been hard. You have to articulate what you meant. I mean, yeah. you smell it like, and you're trying to articulate. For sure, without knowing. And I think I use very uh, unique tools like music and poetry and objects. And it was very much about getting him or her at the time to, to feel what I was feeling. And as that process evolved and as my... I started to learn more about fragrance, I could become more effective in how I directed the work with the perfumer. So for the most people that don't know, fragrance is you know, created by perfumers, who I like to describe as being 50% chemists and 50% artists. And most perfumers have access to pretty much the same raw materials, a library of almost you know, two or 3,000. And the combination of these raw materials is the art. Somebody told me about an experiment was done early on where they had somebody smell two separate components. One of them was vaguely uh, reminiscent of something, but hard to pinpoint what it was. The other one was quite discomforting. And when they mixed these two raw materials together, they smelled identical to chocolate milk. And then <laughs> that's the, you know, the truly the magic of perfume is that one plus one can equal three. And I think I learned that early enough through the perfumers where I was able to, to challenge them into creating smells and combining things that sometimes were unconventional. And that created a very unique perception of what fragrance could be. So how did you think about in those early days? You had a product that you're trying to sell, but being in that business, the beauty business, there's also I mean, the name, I'm curious where that came from, and the packaging and the marketing and the image and all that stuff. How did you think about marrying those ideas of an actual product, the creativity of that with the commercial side of it and having, again, all those trappings that someone would expect from a, you know, a fragrance line that belongs in, in department stores or a place like Colette? I, uh, you know, being an anomaly in the industry, I realized early enough that I needed the brand to be authentic to who I was. Uh, at the same time, I wanted to infuse it with all these aspirations. And I aspired to luxury, right? And I looked at the Hermes and the Chanel, and I studied these houses and these brands in their approach to product and marketing and quality. And then I created my version of that. And that version was probably that of an outsider. And today we talk a lot about inclusiveness and we talk about diversity. Mm-hmm. That represented the authenticity of my brand creating an inclusive and more diverse approach to what luxury could be. So again, 20 years ago, the 
you know, that brand didn't exist in the landscape of brands. So I, I think a part of our success came from a unique perspective. So where did the name Byredo come from? It came from Old English, by redolence, which I think may have been one of the few things I learned in school. <laughs> uh, I don't think I learned that in school. I'm not familiar with that. Uh, Shakespeare. Uh, okay. Uh, but it, it meant uh, reminiscent of, and as the initial work was all reference to memory, uh, but it also meant sweet smelling. All right. So I got to ask this because I read it, and I don't know if it's true. Is it true that you actually don't wear fragrances? It, I mean, you maybe wouldn't want to admit it, that. It, I mean, it, it, used, it used to be true. <laughs> and then I fell in love with one of our fragrances called Palermo, which they've been trying to discontinue for the last five years. <laughs> uh, Why is that? Why are they, Because it doesn't sell? I'm the only or? one who buys it. Uh, yeah. Okay. So it's, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, every now and then, the, for many years, I didn't wear fragrance for practical reasons because I was constantly working on new ones. So, you know, going to work and being neutral in that sense to try new fragrances was important. But uh, also historically, I was never that guy in high school that wore fragrance. It was just not part of the way I grew up. So in my introduction to perfume, I think a large part of the fascination came from it all being completely new. Are the fragrances all meant to be unisex, by the way? Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I think, again, not having any experience in beauty or in fragrance, when they started talking about uh, why are there male fragrances and women fragrances? I didn't understand because it was as bizarre as having a restaurant with a menu for men and one <laughs> for women. Yeah. So for me, I'd kind of disregarded it. And then uh, luckily the world evolved and, and that, uh, that idea kind of faded. Okay, you started doing business there in France. That must have gone well, I guess, at Colette. I mean, you must have gotten a fair amount of editorial. Did, did that create a launching opportunity for you to be able to sell in to department stores you know, outside of Europe and be able to come over to America? How, how did that happen? It was that. I felt like Colette represented kind of the upper echelon of what culture and luxury was at that time. And I took that, the fact that we were selling there, and I cold called and I came over and met the department stores and worked at getting our brand into to this arena. Did you have a cold call to Nordstrom? And if so, who did you talk to? I didn't cold call Nordstrom because Nordstrom came in probably in the second phase. The ah. first, the, first <laughs> the department store that we launched at was actually Barney's. You know, rest in peace. Yeah. Uh, Why didn't you give us Swedes a chance first? I mean, you know. I didn't even know, to be honest. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was all, I think the, the, what we represented at the time fit into that arena. Oh, for sure. But but I was able to learn about the American department store system through them and then through our expansion. And, you know, Nordstrom has been you know, incredible partners for us more, more than 10 years now, I think. So when did you know you had something here? I mean, you'd sold Nicolette, that, I'm sure that was satisfying stuff, but when was it actually like, this is a business and I can really sink my teeth into this and this is going to be a thing? You know, in, in the sixth year of the company, I got a call from an American family called the Fisher family. This is the family that founded the Gap. Oh yeah, sure. Uh, and Bill Fisher, who's you know a dear friend of mine today, said, you know, we'd like to buy your company. That's interesting. I yeah. Mean, and I think it's the first time you know when somebody picked up the phone and said, you know, we'd like to buy your company, where I actually kind of realized that we're on to something. Did they buy part of your company, they, or how did that they, work? They bought a large part of the company. And for the you know coming ten years, we partnered in developing it into a uh, to an international business. And I think throughout that period is when I started to 
understand how big it could become. I would imagine, though, I mean, I, and I don't know anything about this, but fragrances, I mean, they're so personal, first of all. But I would imagine that there's a different sensibility around fragrances by geography and country to country, like what seems familiar and appealing to someone in the Far East might be different than it is in Europe. Is, is that true or is like good is good everywhere and everyone likes partly the true. same things? I, you know, there was some cultural variants, essentially, most of them tied to historic references like fragrance in Japan was associated with geishas. So there was a taboo connected to wearing fragrance. Fragrance in Sweden was considered uh, something out of the norm. And the whole idea was to not stick out. So Sweden was one of the, oddly enough, when I started the company, was one of the worst penetration in terms of fragrance per market. Oh, which really? Was odd. <laughs> um, and so, you know, my, my family's from India. I believe that the palate, you know, in terms of spices and food and gastronomy is wide. And Southeast Asians have a wider appreciation for certain times of smells. But with all that said, when I look at the, the global data, there are more common denominators than uncommon. We'll see the same fragrance as a bestseller in the US, also in Korea, also in Dubai. And that's quite interesting because that speaks to something maybe more physiological. So when you start becoming more successful and you have an investor, it's now it's a real thing. How did that make you feel in terms of your journey of setting out to accomplish something here? And you know, like you mentioned, basketball as a vehicle for you to, you know, live a comfortable life and do the things you wanted to do. How, how did it make you feel when, OK, I feel like this is actually happening? It was incredible. You know, I try. I, one of the things with being an entrepreneur is you seldom look back, right? It's a very forward-looking type of culture. And I think uh, losing sports was, you know, devastating because of this identity that I'd built around this, that part of my life. So even just being able to get up and, and go to work every day and do something that I was passionate about really empowered me to, to keep going. Uh, and then many years later, attributing some type of financial success to it felt quite natural. For me, sports has always been 90% mental. And a part of that is you always have to believe that the ball's going to go in. You always have to believe that you're going to win the game. And I think I approached building business in that way. So the success that I've seen in, in business, even though I'm grateful and happy for it, it was also the way it needed to be in my mind. Yeah, it's it's really a, a fascinating success story, and it's um, and I know for our teams down there, when we have a story to tell about the products, it really helps. And um, you, know, I, you know, there's obviously a story behind this. Talk a little bit about whether it's in your own stores or through you know wholesale channels, places like Nordstrom, how you get the messaging across. So it's more than here's the juice, here's the packaging. That there's something behind it that compels people to want to know more and make it their own thing. We talk a lot about something that I defined as a collective memory. An example of that is one of the first fragrances I created was the smell of my father, you know, who left when I was about six. It's a very distinct smell, obviously tied to my father, but it taps into this idea of a collective memory because I felt that most people could relate a father or a father figure to a smell. So it allowed me to tell a story that was very personal, but at the same time, get people to think about what these smells could mean 
to them. I did that with another smell that was linked to the place in India where my mother was born and raised, a place I visited many times as a child. And even though this was a very specific place in India, in my memories, I felt like most people could connect the idea of India to a smell. So again, this very personal story tapped into this collective memory. And I think today, even though we've ventured outside of maybe the very specific memories and we tackle more abstract notions like emotions and dreams and fiction, I think we try to tell authentic stories that people can relate to. So it continues to be a very exciting medium for me. And even though we make handbags and apparel and now makeup, fragrances still this have an incredible passion around seeing people connect with these products. So for you, I mean, I'm sure you still have a stake in it. For sure. But how do you feel about... It's not just your thing. I mean, you have investors, you've got financial imperatives, big companies and stuff. But how do you think about the commercial part of that? And it's still the fact that you're a founder, creator, and, you know, an inspirational leader in many different ways for this company. Do you still feel like your fingerprints are all over this thing, that it's really, it's Ben Gorm's brand? Or do you feel like it's someone else's thing and they're running with it I think it's much bigger than Ben Gorm. And I I do think that... My input as an entrepreneur and a founder and a creative director are, are still valid, and I think they can still help build this company. But the fact that it wasn't Ben Gorham perfumes, the fact that it was Byredo suggested that it was also always different from me as a person. So I think I was able to disconnect ego at some point in this journey. It's been a long time since I looked at it as being mine or being somebody else's. Again, I had investors day one. So I was accountable day one Mm -hmm. to other people. So it's the way I continue to work. And I think the, the partnerships that I've been lucky enough to forge have been with people that understand my value and share my vision. So Ben, what are you most proud of at this point? I mean, you've had all the success and it's awesome. Um, But as you think about your personal journey, what are you most proud of? It's a good question. (laughs) I think think I'm proud of uh, what we built, you know, and and I say that because it really has been a lot of people over the last 20 years that have contributed to building this company. And, And I'm proud of us building a company with, you know, integrity, with creative integrity, a product that I'm proud of, and I get that affirmed when meeting customers and people. Do you like that part of it? You like interfacing yeah, with customers? Yeah, it's, it's still a little bit scary <laughs> and a bit uh, and a bit intimate because uh, you understand that these products are meaningful to a lot of people. But I think I, I sat with your teams today. Nordstrom was talking about like making people feel good. I get a great sense of joy of people feeling good when using and experiencing our products. Right. Hey, Ben, this is really fun for me. You know, we've met before and stuff, but to get a chance to actually know your story and and get to know you a little bit better, I'm just a big fan. We're super appreciative of the business we have together. And it's inspiring to hear this entrepreneur's story about how you, you know, created something that's endured and is growing. So congratulations to you and thank you. Thank you.
Okay, today we're gonna do something that we always talk about doing, but we rarely do. At the end of every episode that we have, we say, please give us a call or shoot us an email if you've got a customer service story, good service or bad service. And I don't know that we've ever actually had someone talk about bad service. We've had a lot of nice things. And it's not that we always get nice things. We we get our share of things that we're not doing well. But something really got my attention a while back. There's a forum on Facebook that's called Nordstrom Friends. And then there was this big string about, you know, Nordstrom's kind of lost its way and it's not going well. And the thing that kind of grabbed me, though, is there are there were a few people in there that I actually know that I've worked with. So these are not anonymous people out there just taking a shot. And, and there was a big back and forth in this Nordstrom CUNY people talking about it. So I I actually responded and said, look, it, I'm reading this. I'm watching this. And it makes me feel bad that there's been bad experiences from our Nordstrom family of you know ex-employees, what have you. If anyone's got something to say about it, I'd love to talk to anybody directly. And someone took me up on that. So today we're welcoming to the Nordy Pod, Vicki Redding. So Vicki, thanks so much for being on this. Absolutely. So what I want to do, Vicki, if it's okay with you, is after we had that exchange on the Facebook thing, you sent me an email. So I'm going to read a couple things from that so people understand kind of what's going on. Then we'll take it from there. So bear with me. Cutting to the chase, it says, my husband and I met at Nordstrom, he was also a buyer, and have been loyal Nordstrom customers for 35 plus years. One thing we could always count on, Nordstrom had the best customer service in the marketplace and the product offered was broad and unique. Unfortunately, from my perspective, as I sit writing this email, this is no longer the case. Over the past several years, the customer service has continued to decline to the point where it is now shockingly poor. That got my attention. Shockingly poor. Okay. I would challenge you to go incognito, walk the floors, get a true read of how customers are being treated. I would also add, in many departments, it's hard to recognize a salesperson versus a customer. Nordstrom always had extremely professional salespeople dressed appropriately and beautifully for their specific department. Today, it seems there is no dress code and anything goes. In closing, I want to stress how much my husband and I, family members, love Nordstrom. And then it it trails off from there. So, first of all, I appreciate your candor, even though it was really hard for me to read. So, maybe you can pick it up from there and and give um, the listeners a little bit of insight into your background. Because you were employed at Nordstrom for several years, and we used to work together in Orange County. So, tell us a little bit about that, and then talk about what prompted you to write this to me. Um, So I was at Nordstrom from probably 83 until 92. I went in as a salesperson and worked my way up to a buyer. So I have a lot of love for Nordstrom and Deep Roots. And I always say I wouldn't be where I was today in my career without Nordstrom being my foundation. To add to that, my daughter worked at Nordstrom. Both of my brother-in-laws worked at Nordstrom. My nieces worked at Nordstrom. So you can see where we're going. Our whole family has always shopped at Nordstrom. And it just seems like over the last several years, that mentality of greeting the customer, 
asking what the customer's looking for, how can you service the customer, that's gone away. I can give you just a couple of examples that had recently happened to me. I have been a longtime La Mer customer and I ran out of my face cleanser. So I go to Mission Viejo, go to the La Mer counter, I need cleanser. We don't, we're, we're out of cleanser. Okay, do you know when you're getting it in? Nope, I have no idea. So I, I left. Yeah, that's not a very good response. I don't blame you for leaving. Okay, keep going. I drove to South Coast Plaza. I'm like, okay, they have to have cleanser. Go to the La Mer counter. Sorry, we're out of cleanser and I'm not sure when we're getting it in. No, like, let me take your name and number. Let me call you. There was nothing. Just we're out of this cleanser. So I thought to myself, okay, well, I'm going to walk down to Bloomingdale's. Yeah, it's not it's not a big deal that we didn't have it. The big deal was we didn't provide a solution for you. Yeah, that's right. And that's and that's not that hard to do. And right. it's and also it's in their best interest. That's right. What and particularly La Mer, that stuff's expensive. And I would have purchased more. Because <sighs> you're killing me. I, I get it. Soon after that, I get an email from Nordstrom that there's um, a resurfacing serum that is exclusive to Nordstrom go back to Mission Viejo, go to the Lemire counter. There's a group of salespeople, I'm assuming, all over at another counter, just chit-chatting. I pick up the serum off the display. I'm looking at it. Not one person came over to ask if I needed help. Again, I walked away. Yeah, that's 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 a bad experience. I'm, I apologize. And for me... I remember we had our personal books, right? We had our customer, our repeat customers, what they wanted. You know, we if, if we didn't have what they were looking for, we would take note. And if, you know, we'd ask the buyer, are we getting this in? Or, I mean, do personal books still exist? Yeah, they do, but they exist online because you can imagine the privacy issues of people writing down customers' credit cards on a piece of paper and then yeah. putting it in a shelf at, a, at the store. But, I mean, to your point, I mean, you know, because you've sold, it's not always easy to do that. The easy thing to do is grab a pen and write something down, right? Yeah. And that, that would be my instinct as well. So I think part of it is, while we do have vehicles for people to do that, it might be more cumbersome then it should be. Therefore, they're probably not using it as well as they could. I, if I had to guess, I would guess that's somewhat of what it's about. Because I, I don't know if it was uh, Mr. John or Mr. Bru- or your dad, Bruce, was always say like, data can only tell you so much, right? The sales reports can only tell you so much. But what you're hearing directly from the customer is where you should, you know, be pivoting. Right. So, you, I mean, you, these are explicit examples and I, I can't discount that. It's, it happened to you, so it's real. And I, you're talking about multiple things that have happened, which, I mean, I think, you, you know, you've been around long enough to know that any one individual thing can happen at any time. But what you're talking about is a pattern, right? You're seeing more of a pattern. That's, right. That's troubling to me. Yeah. And I think to add, I'm hearing it from so many people you know, friends, family, that they're saying what's happening where Nordstrom is walking away from service. 
I mean, if you were around here, I think you would notice that it's still the stuff that gets talked about all the time. I, I can't explain why we would have had multiple problems. And even to the extent that it seems to be a pervasive issue with your friends and family, that's part of the reason why when I heard from you on this thing, I I couldn't discount it and I couldn't rationalize it because I had a sense of where it was coming from and that that we've fallen short with you. I, I, I feel really badly about it. So one of the things I, I do all the time on the show is I ask people if they've got advice for me. And, and since we're going there, I mean, OK, what advice do you have for us that would help us get some traction here? I mean, do you still have people that go in and, you know, bring feedback to to you that have gone in incognito to shop the store. Yeah, you know, we used to do those secret shopper things, and that what we secret used to call shopper, it. Thank you. Yeah, yes. I mean, we haven't done one of those formally in a while, and part of it is, I mean, the nature of social networks and all this stuff, and the way people communicate is that you get all this feedback in real time anyway. So I guess maybe we feel like we're hearing it all the time, but I guess what you're suggesting maybe isn't a bad idea. It might be time for us to have a, a secret shopper thing is see if we can get, you know, some objective third party input on some of this stuff. I'm actually, I'm meeting with the, we have a new head of stores now and I'm meeting with her later today. That might be a good subject for me. Yes. Is there anything else, Vicki, you know, since you've been nice enough to get on the phone with me, anything else you want us to know or questions about what we're working on? Because again, I'm, I'm happy to be super transparent about what we're trying to do. No, I mean, I think the one thing I mentioned there is just the dress code. You know, when we were both there, the dress code was very strict. Yes. We all wore product from Nordstrom. And you had to wear I hosiery, if I remember correctly. The women we had were, to wear hosiery. I, mean, I was wearing hosiery. <laughs> Our shoes were in tip-top condition. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You know, it's funny you say that because I was actually walking through the downtown store the other day and there was there was a guy at Men's Sportswear and he was so casual. I was like, oh boy. But, you know, part of what I explained to you when I wrote you back was Bye. we let it go a long time ago that they had to have a more formal appearance because we found actually it was off-putting to a lot of customers. It felt like too formal a place. We just kind of told people to use their best judgment. It doesn't mean their personal just best judgment was good judgment, though. Some people might have taken that too far. So it's it, that you mentioned this. I actually talked to I was one of our regional managers recently that said we got to like start holding attention a little bit more on what people are wearing to work because I it's too much. So you'll like this. This happened to me today, Vicky. This I, I came walking into work and through the employee entrance and we have a person that works the door. And she was wearing a Gap sweatshirt. And this is 7.30 in the morning. I come walking in. There's a person wearing a Gap sweatshirt. Let me in the door. And I get upstairs. The first person I see is my cousin, Jamie. I said, did you see the person the Gap sweatshirt? He's like, yeah, I can't believe it. Like, he, like, blew a gasket. And then I saw Eric, like, 10 minutes later. Did you see the person wearing a Gap? Like, I can't believe it. So just so you know, the DNA is still strong on this stuff. We were like... Oh, my God. So I do. Th I, I appreciate your point of view that there should be a certain standard of professionalism. And that doesn't always translate perfectly to what someone wears, but it certainly should be in the way they present themselves to right. customers. Right. In terms of how they engage yeah. with customers. And that's a that's a super, uh, I think, constructive reminder to us, too. So, I mean, just 
creating some guardrails yeah. for dress code, right? Yeah, it, it may not include hosiery or wearing ties like we were doing. No, but yes. no, but yes. Anyway, it, it stings when I read stuff like this, and particularly if there's ever any indication that perhaps people like Eric and I aren't, we're too far removed from what's going on, so we don't know what's going on. You know, what we really count on at the end of the day is are all these people out there, all the different managers that we have, that they feel like it's them, about them and they have skin in the game and they're accountable for it. It's not like, well, I guess these Nordstrom guys want us to do something. Maybe I'll do it. Maybe I won't. If you remember back when you were a department manager and stuff, think about what made you successful was the fact that you probably felt like you had, it was your thing, right? You had skin in the oh, game. 100%. I felt like it was my own business. Yeah. And I think ultimately, the more that we can transfer that accountability, you know, because empowerment's awesome, but it doesn't mean anything if you don't have accountability with it, right? So you need both. And I think it's a, it's a humbling reminder to me that we have to continue to beat the drum about what it means to be a, you know, like a store manager, department manager, and that, you know, you're accountable for what's happening, the experience that's happening for customers in the store. And if we disappoint anyone, that's one too many. So, I mean, these are easy things to say. They're hard to do, but it doesn't change the fact that we still need to try to do them. Agreed. The last thing is, I, I hope the fact that you cared enough to let us know means you you care enough not to give up on us entirely. So I hope you give us another chance. Don't give up on us. We can do better and we will do better. And you tell your friends or any of these other folks that are weighing in about, they got something to say. I'm, I'm happy to hear it. Well, thank you. I so appreciate you um, hearing me out and allowing me to, to speak about this. Well, that's the show. We're really glad you're with us on this journey, and we hope you keep listening. The easiest way to do that is to subscribe to the Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share, and a review so other people can find this thing too. For more information about the show, head to nordstrom.com slash nordypodcast or follow us on our Instagram page at the Nordypod to stay up to date on new episodes, announcements, and more. And again, as we always say, and as you just heard, we really want to hear about your experience with Nordstrom. And of course, we love hearing the good stories, but we want to hear the bad stuff too. It makes us better. So send us an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com or give us a call and leave a voicemail. You might get a chance to talk to me personally on the show. That number is 206-594-0526. So don't be shy. Drop us a line and be part of the Nordy Pod. And make sure to tune in next time when I take a special trip over to my alma mater, the University of Washington, to drop in on the class of Dr. Martha Matthews at the Foster School of Business. As Chief Brand Officer at Nordstrom, how do you kind of determine what will align with the Nordstrom brand image? How intentional is it for Nordstrom to become more than just a retailer and actually part of the community? Uh, you mentioned how sustainability and ethical practices are becoming increasingly important to consumers. I'm just curious how you take diversity into consideration when you're making decisions about like brand image and things like that. Do you try to create that kind of brand loyalty in younger demographics? Because 
a lot of the actual products I feel like are tailored more towards older generations. What's that mean when you say older? 30, like, what are we talking about here? Probably like 30 to 50. Like, <laughs> You're going to love listening to the thoughts and questions of these bright young minds, eager to dive into the wide world of business. So join us next time on The Nordy Pod.